Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me here again on the Freed Thinker podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In today's episode, we will be continuing our presentation of my book review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please contact me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com or on our Facebook uh, group page at facebook.com slash group slash the Freed Thinker Podcast. And now, on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Atrocities and Absurdities At this point, before starting this chapter, I feel the need to remind us of a reality that will bear on our understanding of this coming chapter. This reality is to remind us that McAfee's own moral outrage over supposed atrocities presupposes the existence of real and objective moral standards, whereby he feels justified to make statements of real moral outrage. This, however, as we have seen, is actually a point in favor of the theist, for it places McAfee on the horns of a real epistemological dilemma. He must either admit that there are real violations of some universal moral law, but then must denounce his atheism for it can surely never ground such a law, or he must accept his atheism but reject his use of a universal moral law and thus his use of this objection against God. It seems he must choose here between his atheism or his love affair with this objection. Something tells me, however, that the cognitive dissonance will not be powerful enough for him to abandon either, and that he will continue to blissfully hold both contradictory positions. What should also be brought to light at this point is the kind of straw man that this brand of objections often are. The reason for this is because they take on the form of cherry-picking, which passages are allowed to come to bear on the problem and thus only deal with a lesser concept of God than the one presented in the Bible. For example, they might decry God's wrath, but they ignore all of the passages that talk about why God is wrathful based on his holiness and man's depravity. They might say that God is unjust, but they only do so by ignoring all of the passages that would justify God's actions. They just ignore the severity of sin or the holiness of God as they are presented in the Bible. Then, when this is pointed out, they fall back on, well, the Bible is just fictional anyway. Here is the problem with that kind of response. Objections based on God's actions in the Bible function as a kind of for-the-sake-of-argument style of reasoning. That is, even though atheists do not believe in God or the reliability or inerrancy of the Bible, they are willing to set all that aside and, for the sake of argument, assume that God exists and that the Bible is an accurate portrayal of what has occurred in God's interactions with humanity in history. They are saying, in essence, okay, if God exists and if he acted in the way that the Bible describes, then God is a moral monster. This means, however, that they must be willing, for the sake of argument, to allow all that the Bible says about that subject or incident to enter into the discussion. When they are shown that when other passages are allowed to come to bear on the subject that they alleviate or resolve the issue, they cannot then fall back on well, God doesn't exist anyway. They have, for the sake of argument, allowed that God does exist. So in this case, they must either show why those new passages do not in fact alleviate the issue, 
or else abandon the objection because it was addressing a straw man of a lesser concept of God and his interaction with humanity than what the Bible portrays. Now, with that preface in place, let us look to the passages that McAfee has provided with, uh, us with and see if he fares any better in this chapter than he has in the previous ones. God controls who is made blind, deaf, etc. This objection is not new, but I do understand how McAfee himself thought it was worthy to be added in the second edition. It is a challenging verse indeed, and I fully admit we only have limited answers to it. He begins by citing a small portion of dialogue between God and Moses in Exodus. Quote, but Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of the tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Exodus 4, 10 through 11. McAfee intends this to show that God is the one who makes people blind, deaf, etc., and says, quote, This biblical passage in Exodus indicates that it is, indeed, God that creates these imperfections in all humans, end quote, page 85. My first question would be, where does McAfee get the idea that it shows God creates these, quote, imperfections in all people, end quote? The passage just says nothing of the sort. In fact, in the context, Moses had just been shown several miracles confirming that God would indeed be with him as he went before Pharaoh. But Moses was still worried about his ability to be an emissary for God because he did not think he was eloquent enough. But that being said, Moses did not have a handicap. He just felt he was not a great orator. And God's response to him was to tell him, basically, that if God called him to be an emissary, that he would be able to carry it out. It is in this context that God makes the statement that he does. As Terence Fretheim observes, the passages not imply that God picks and chooses which individuals will be deaf, mute, or blind, quote, as if God entered into the womb of every pregnant woman and determined whether and how a child would have disabilities, end quote. One of the many reasons for this is that the Hebrew word translated may, seyum, and does not refer to the act of creation, but rather to establishing or setting something in its place. The Hebrew word for creation, bara, and that is the word that would be used if a Hebrew writer wanted to show that God created, ordered, or made something, such as in Genesis 1, where it was used when God creates the heavens and the earth. That the author of Exodus chose uh, uh, Naim as, uh, uh, over bara is telling, since Saim does not mean that God creates or makes the blind and the deaf. What does it mean, and why do so many translations translate it as made? Well, the answer as to why translations choose the English words that they do is complicated, since they not only have to choose a corresponding word or words that most often accurately represent the original meaning, but they must also make it work within the confines of the English language. It is for this reason that translators likely chose made rather than sets or establishes, because the meaning of the English statement, who establishes the blind, would be awkward. 
What this passage really implies is that God created the kind of world where humans would be may become disabled due to the course of nature, but that God is free to use anyone to achieve his goal. God created a world in which natural processes can be corrupted and that mortals are sometimes flogged with defects like deafness and muteness, but he is not constrained by the handicaps of humans. If God has established a blind man to do his ministry, for example, the blind man cannot get off the hook by saying, but I'm blind. God wanted Moses to know that as the creator, God is able to work around such obstacles in achieving his objectives and could do so through whoever he desires to call. In the ministry of Jesus, God went further and demonstrated that the presence of his kingdom is evidenced by overcoming such obstacles altogether. Moses could not get off the hook by claiming he was a poor orator just so he would not have to do what God was calling him to do. While I do not think the purpose of the passage is to say that God directly creates people blind or deaf, I would also like to add that the handicaps that people possess have, off, have been orchestrated by God as part of his grand tapestry of redemption. They are not punishments by any means. Remember that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus approached a blind man, John says, quote, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. End quote. John 9, 1 through 3. God has made you and and by whatever means you are either seeing or blind. He has made you and by whatever means you are either hearing or deaf. Yet why did he do that? Is it a kind of punishment? Is it due to some generational sin that your parents or grandparents committed before you were born? No, but because he loves you. It may sound strange, but God allows it because he wants you he wants your life to glorify him. He wants his works to be displayed in you and in your life. The reason that this answer feels so clinical and cold to us is because we put so much weight on this life and these bodies. We so badly want physical comfort and security here and now. We look at the blind or the deaf or the poor and say, what a terrible shame. God, how can you allow this? But we must remember that the picture of life that the Bible presents us is that this life is so short and eternity is so very long. The scriptures consistently attempt to expand our view on life and how inconsequential so much of it will seem from the eternal perspective. This is not to diminish the importance of this life and the need to make the most of it while we are here. As other responses before, showing the vastly more important value of eternity does not diminish the importance of this life here and now. Only that when viewed from the position of eternity, the sufferings in this life are put into a clearer perspective. The Apostle Paul, a man familiar with brutal suffering, wrote, quote, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, end quote, Romans 8, 118. So what we find in the statements from McAfee, such as this one, quote, the idea that God creates painful, 
difficult and unjustified disabilities in some humans and not others seems arbitrary and contrary to the modern teaching of a loving creator, end quote, page 85, is that McAfee makes several assumptions. Not only does he make the false assumption as stated above, that this text means that God makes people blind or deaf, but we also see that he assumes that disabilities would be unjustified in a theistic universe. This brings us back to the problem of pain. Does McAfee have omniscience such that he knows all the facts in order to know whether or not God would have morally sufficient reasons for allowing what he permits to come to pass? Last I check, McAfee hardly understands much about the topics he is attempting to refute, let alone possessing omniscience. God sends bears to maul 42 children. This passage is actually truly interesting for several reasons. It's not only a very strange narrative replete with difficult words to translate, let alone interpret, but it is also chock full of cultural idioms and customs that are wholly unfamiliar to our modern sensibilities. Let us comb through McAfee's objection and see if his summation of 2 Kings 2, 22-24 makes any sense. First, he says that the 42 youths were, quote, little children, end quote. The Hebrew word na'ar is na'ar, and while it can mean child, its predominant lexicographical meaning is something more along the lines of young man, youth, or lad, and would refer to someone between 12 and 25 years of age. While that is still a young age in our culture, Considering that average life expectancy in ancient cultures, these young men would have been adults by any definition of the term in ancient Israel. We should also point out that there was not one or two of them, but there were at least 42 of them. Footnote, 42 of them were mauled. This means that even if every youth there had been mauled, there were 42 of them. However, chances are that many more escaped, and so the mob would have likely been quite a bit larger. This was not just some friends hanging out playing kickball or trading baseball cards. In the ancient world, this amount of young men traveling the countryside was not a traveling t-ball team, but a gang of brigands looking for defenseless travelers to assault. And did God see fit to call bears upon them simply because they were insulting a man with male pattern balding? That seems like a strange insult, does it not? Well, we actually know that, quote, go up, end quote, was one of the ancient ways of saying, why don't you die already? Which, when coming from an angry mob, may be more of a statement of intent than rhetorical flourish. And that bald head was actually a derogatory term applied to people, even if they themselves were not balding. It was an allusion to the sickly appearance of those suffering from leprosy, a disease that rendered someone ceremonially unclean and forever abandoned and scorned by society. Thus, in effect, these were children of the covenant who should have been taught the law of God, but were instead violent, hostile, and derogatory to the chosen prophet of God at the time. He was God's chosen messenger. This is an Old Testament similarity with the Pharisees who said that Jesus may have casted out demons, but that he did it by the power of Satan rather than God. 
Historically speaking, it is during this period, after the loss of Israel's main prophet Elijah, that gangs of brigands would have attempted to exert their power unchecked by the intervention of God. This group in particular was just outside Bethel, the main center of worship at that time, which had now become a cultic center of calf worship, even though it still was the major location for Yahweh worship. So they would have been harassing, robbing, beating, probably even killing many of the people traveling to Bethel to worship God and stealing their tithes, literally their sin offerings to God. This has led to two different thoughts, that these use would either be a threat to the religious life of Bethel, since they were willing to insult and potentially kill the very prophet of God, they would have had no fear of uh, of causing chaos in the religious center of Israel, or that they were something like emissaries from Bethel meant to drive the prophet away. That is, the city that was design, designated uh, to be the place where God's people could go to be redeemed was in a state of active rebellion, rebellion, sending out a violent horde to kill God's messenger before he could even enter the city. In this case, God would actually be acting in judgment on the hypocrisy of the people inhabiting Bethel and who would have been keeping true worshipers from coming to worship God in peace. In either case, this scenario is nothing like God capriciously killing 42 little children for just joking about male pattern baldness. What makes this passage even more insightful is that it is actually part of a couplet which compares the fruits of two different cities. Elisha uses the fruits of the first city, Jericho, to perform a miracle of healing and restoration because the city was righteous. It was the fruit of the second city, the wickedness of their youth, that was the basis for Elijah's miracle of condemnation. It was a call for Israel to repent and return to God and a warning to those who did not. And this warning was well taken. Even the wicked kings instantly came to respect Elijah as the prophet of God. Now, while you may not find these answers compelling or you doubt the historical reliability of the documents, the point is that a surface-level reading of the passage is the cause of all kinds of confusion. Ancient literature is vastly more nuanced than we think. Human beings as commodities and property. Here McAfee cites Exodus 21:20 through 21, which ends with the statement, quote, for the slave is his money, end quote and objects that this shows immorality in the law of God because it shows people as property of other people. Since I have stated that I will be brief for this last chapter, I will try to do my best to be concise where I can. This will be easier on some rather than others since some of these objections are so trivial that to give any substantial answer would require page after page to merely catch McAfee up, and thus the comments will be largely procedural. This is one of those points. I will only have three brief comments about this objection. First is that here McAfee fails to note the different types of slavery that he is thinking of. Commonly when we hear the term slavery, we think of African slavery of colonial and early America with its viciousness, racially driven motiva motivation, and massive death rate. This however is far from the picture of ancient forms of slavery that to not mention it is almost to be deceitful on McAfee's part. 
When we consider that Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house and was second only to Potiphar, and then again a slave to Pharaoh's and only and second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt, a largely different picture emerges. Consider an African slave in early America being second in power, wealth, and authority to only that of the president. We can also look at we can also look at almost all ancient cultures where slavery was not racial in the slightest, but actually was the result of some other nation's conquest. Those who survived the conquest were sold as slaves, but th this did not mean that they were sold into abject poverty or dismal conditions. Often slaves were indistinguishable from freemen in ethnicity, class, wealth, clothing, etc. We even see many people sold themselves into slavery because it was often basically the ancient equivalent of modern trade schools. They would sell themselves to a great man to learn a trade from him, then buy themselves out and would frequently be, and would frequently be self-made by that point. In many of the Greek and Roman cities, some high-ranking public offices could only be held by slaves such as city treasurers. This does not mean that there were no cases of widespread abuse of slaves. We can even just think of Israel and Egypt prior to the Exodus. But to miss this drastic difference between ancient forms of slavery and the common picture we as modern Americans think of is just dishonest. The second point that I would like to make is that Christians believe in what is called progressive revelation. That is, that God became more progressively revealed and revealed more of his moral law in clearer ways as redemptive history developed. We can see clear examples of this when we look at comparisons between the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. For the Ten Commandments, Moses was to tell the people not to murder, no unjustified killing. But Jesus says that if we hate someone in our hearts, consider them worth less alive than dead, we have committed murder by harboring pre-murderous thoughts. Whereas Moses reveals the standard of an eye for an eye, Jesus says turn the other cheek. The moral law of God becomes more refined as redemptive history advances. This is not because God becomes more moral, but because Israel was growing and becoming more capable of understanding. This applies to the slavery question because the practice was not just an addition to ancient culture. It was a basic assumption of all cultures at the time. To contravene the practice completely would be to basically demand that the Israelites remove themselves from the world. So God became subversive and did two things. The first is that he restricted the practice. He set limitations and gave the slaves more rights than they ever had before or anywhere else. But God also revealed other attributes of what made for proper worship of God. Compassion, charity, forgiveness, care for the oppressed, protection of the sojourner, etc. So that the true seeker of God might begin to have real dissonance between their worship of God and the cultural custom of keeping slaves. He was beginning to crack the shell. We can see several examples of this. Think of the law, an eye for an eye. Is that what is required by the law? Or what is the maximum allowed by the law? 
Most Christians contend that it is the latter, that God was beginning the slow refinement and restricting of immoral cultural practices, and that his intention was to ultimately lead to the Christ ethic whereby believers would obey the inward law of Christ rather than just outwardly obeying the law of Moses. We see a prime example of this in the story of Joseph and Mary. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, but was still in the dark that Mary had not actually had an affair, Joseph was called righteous for his response of choosing to divorce her quietly. Why? Well, according to the Pharisaical interpretation of the law, he could have had her shunned, exiled, or, if there were witnesses to the illicit relationship, stoned. But he resolves to divorce her quietly so as not to isolate her, shun her, shame her, or have her stoned. He was within his legal rights if he chose an alternative route, and yet he resolved to act in compassion and charity rather than punitively. That is why he was called righteous. The law was primarily a civil code for geopolitical Israel and its actions in and among the other nations. To demand that all of the laws were moral obligations, or to miss the concept of progressive revelation, reveals an inadequate understanding in one's knowledge of how the Mosaic Law operated. The final point is that we find in the Bible something we find in no other ancient text. We find slaves being given rights. We see that slaves could not be killed except for crimes per the Mosaic Law, just as with all other citizens. We see that if they are injured, they must be given their freedom. By law, slaves could not have, could not have fair wages held from them, and they must have been given a share of the crop that they worked. There were many laws like this, but one of the most shocking things about the biblical law concerning slaves is that God actually mandates a year of jubilee, a period of total emancipation. Every 49th year, Israel was required to hit a reset button. All land must go back to the original clan that owned it, all slaves must be freed, and all debts must be canceled. This is absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, God was so adamant about it that much of his condemnation of Israel was over their failure to follow this specific law. He condemns them repeatedly for failing to observe years of Sabbath rest every seven years, with the seventh, seventh year, every 49, being the year of Jubilee. In essence, God was immensely, immensely concerned with the social justice given to slaves. In conjunction with the previous response, we can note that while Jubilee and freedom were expressly given to Israelites who sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt, the notion of progressive revelation and moral progress reveals that the illocutionary intent of the law could have been to have a Jew notice that he was not to mistreat his brothers that were under his control and then to examine the way he treated foreigners who were under his authority. While the law was set in place as a curbing effect of evil, the moral law of God behind the civil laws were to refine the moral sensibilities of the people. 
to caricature the Bible's treatment of slaves as just property is again to simply fail to do any research on the issue or even consider any of the possible responses. Moses to his soldiers. In this objection, McAfee uses for his proof text Numbers 31, 17 through 18 to try and say that Moses' command to take the women and the children who were left alive after the conquest as some kind of command to take them as the, quote, spoils of war, end quote, for, quote, sex and labor, end quote, page 88. In response to this extremely brief statement, yes, he only presents it in one singular sentence, let me just point out that again, intercontextuality will solve all of the problems that McAfee thinks he sees. For example, when we look at the parallel command in Deuteronomy 21:10 through 14, we read, quote, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother for a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go wherever she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. End quote. From this passage, we see that what is commanded is actually quite different from the picture presented by McAfee in his summation. Moses was not commanding that the Jews could take women and children for sex and labor, but, according to the context of the law, was giving protective rights to women of the conquered nation, a right given by literally no other nation of the ancient Near East. What we find in the law is that should an Israelite want to take a refugee woman into his house, he is expressly forbidden to do anything like taking her for sex and labor. In fact, they are told that they must take them into their house as a wife and not a slave, and they are forbidden from sleeping with them for a minimum one month, if not more, until they have grieved the loss of their parents. And should she not delight him, not a sexual term, but a relational one, for this refers to other marriages in the Bible as well, he must let her go wherever she wants and not sell her into slavery or keep her as a slave since he would have Quote, humiliated her, end quote. In the ancient world, where women usually were subjected to rape, sex slavery, and labor following a conquest, as McAfee is probably thinking, the fact that this is explicitly forbidden in the Israelite legal code is without equal in any other ancient Near Eastern legal code or moral system, and does the exact opposite of the caricature that McAfee would have us believe. Lot and incest. I'm actually at a loss for why this objection is even in the book and did not get cut for the second edition. There are two parts to it, with the first being that Lot had incestuous relations with his daughters 
and the second was his offer of his daughters to the men of Sodom to dissuade them from raping the angels he was harboring. As to the first of these points, I'm not sure how this can be a problem for Lot, since it was his daughters who got him drunk and then, while he was passed out, they had relations with him. Calling this a problem for Lot, besides his taste for moonshine, seems quite uncharitable, like blaming rape on the victim. Now, as for his offer of his daughters to the Sodomites, there are actually many commentators who say that Lot's intentions intention was to draw the evil consciences of the sodomites away from an action that they did not recognize as a moral homosexual gang rape to an action that any ancient culture would have seen as a serious crime even a capital one in some cultures the rape of a virgin betrothed to be married footnote for more on this there is a sermon that i preached titled sodom a salvation story devoted to this very passage that you can find on my website. To make matters worse for McAfee is that is the fact that the Bible says nothing like he does when he states, quote, this act is deemed pious by his God and Lot is spared during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, end quote, page 90. In fact, one of the major dilemmas that Abraham has leading up to this event is that he tries to plead with God to not destroy the cities on account of the righteous that might be living there. Surely his nephew Lot was on his mind. And yet God still destroys the city. The theme develops in the narrative that not only were their sinful city not only were the sinful cities not spared because of anyone righteous living within them, but also that Lot is actually not spared because of his own righteousness, but precisely because of the intercession of Abraham on his behalf. Footnote. What McAfee seems to miss in his reference to the New Testament comments about Lot being righteous is that they depict Lot as being righteous as an example of how we are righteous. Yet, as discussed previously, we are not righteous because of our own good behavior, but because Christ imputes his righteousness to us. We are redeemed because of someone else's intercession on our behalf. So it is with Lot. In either case, McAfee's objection seems to crumble under the lack of research concerning other possible readings done prior to printing the argument. Another small comment should be made about McAfee's research again. I do not mean to split hairs over inconsequential details, but it goes as evidence for what I've been pointing out all along. McAfee is much more concerned with mocking Christianity than he is concerned with doing actual research or presenting unbiased statements. He states, quote, It is interesting to note that Lot and his family were continu continually deemed righteous by God throughout the Old Testament in spite of the instances of incest allowed rape etc. noted above, end quote, page 91. The problem here, besides the allowed rape comment that again seems to want to blame the victim, is that outside of the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, Lot and his family are not mentioned a single time throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, when he is in fact mentioned once beyond the narrative itself, 
or sorry, excuse me, how McAfee can say that he is continually deemed righteous by God throughout the Old Testament when he is in fact not mentioned once beyond the narrative itself is beyond me. A rich man shall hardly enter heaven. We discussed this passage briefly before in the context of McAfee's statement that Jesus did not think he was divine. divine. Here McAfee views the passage but with a different goal in mind. In Matthew 19, we find the encounter of a rich man and Jesus in which Jesus makes his famous statement, quote, It is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. Here, McAfee would like to suggest that we see this passage as Jesus is claiming that the only way to enter heaven is through utter poverty and destitution what we will see is that there are a couple of reasons why such a reading is hopelessly misguided. First is that the passage actually may not even refer to a camel entering through the eye of a sewing needle, but rather the eye of a needle, the name of a very thin passageway found in Jerusalem. The phrase dia trumpetos raphidos actually can be read either way since neither a definite or indefinite article is present. Some commentators have pointed out that this would be like the modern equivalent of a big rig trying to turn down a one-way street in San Francisco during rush hour. It's not a statement of impossibility, but of extreme difficulty. Why? Because it's difficult for one who trusts in their riches to trust in God to sustain and provide for them. This phrase is an illustrated version of what Jesus says more explicitly elsewhere, quote, no one can serve two masters, end quote. What does it mean to trust in God's provision when we are in want of nothing because of personal wealth? McAfee also seems to miss that the context of the passage reveals that this is a conversation about a specific context for a specific person. Notice that this man went away upset because he had great wealth and presumably was defined by it. We can see that in dealing with other rich people, such as Nicodemus or Jairus, Jesus makes no such demands because it was apparently not the idol of their hearts that needed to be exposed. It was not the stumbling block for them in their ability to trust in God. In fact, the demands of Jesus seem to be custom-made for each idol held by whoever he may be interacting with. This is bolstered even more when we recognize that people such as Abraham, David, and Solomon were most assuredly members of God's people, and yet they were some of the wealthiest people, Solomon arguably being the richest in all the Bible. Fire and brimstone from heaven. This again is quite a ludicrous objection. McAfee states, quote, traditional Christian views of heaven paint the picture of a luxurious oasis in the clouds in which worldly concerns have no place. This quote, however, illustrates the Lord raining brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, indicating that the contemporary ideas of heaven and hell may be different from what the Bible teaches, end quote, page 93. I'm actually yet again in almost a stupor over the fact that McAfee actually thinks that this is even obje an objection which merits being printed. There are several reasons for this. First is that while it would be hard to say that the fire and brimstone are some kind of analogy, it is also absurd to say that, that just because the sky is called heaven, 
that it was somehow from the celestial realm in which God and the heavenly host dwell that the fire fell. Heavens in the Bible commonly just refers to something way up there. This kind of wooden literalism is beyond and intellectually defensible, no matter who it comes from, whether anti-theistic or Christian fundamentalism. Second is the fact that no Christian actually believes that heaven is up in the clouds. To confuse a kind of culturally formed imagery used in artistic, artistic expressions with the actual doctrine of heaven as expressed in the Bible or theological beliefs by Christians about it is undeniably intellectually negligent. The Lord slays the Ethiopians. This, like others before it, is actually another variation of the, quote, would a loving God do X, end quote, objection, and has been repeatedly answered. Like many other times before, in this instance, McAfee again seems to confuse clear hyperbole with wooden literalism. In Zephaniah 2, 11-13, the passage listed, McAfee seems to think that just because it says Ethiopians, which is actually a reference to the Cushites, just another flaw of the KJV, that it means all Ethiopians. This is obviously not the case since even God's own promises of judgment against his own chosen Israel is also not carried out against every person, even though it does come against the nation itself. God promised to judge Israel, but also to spare a faithful remnant. Footnote, one only needs to read Lamentations to see God's stringent rebuke and announcement of judgment upon his own people, Israel. What is also completely lacking is why such a pronouncement would be made and if it is a description or a prescription. Zephaniah writes, quote, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. End quote. Here Zephaniah is pronouncing the judgment on the Cushites that, that due to their sin and wickedness their nation would be struck down. What is utterly lacking is any command for anyone to do it. Here, God is not demanding that Israel do it. All that is being said is that the Cushites, because of their wickedness, will be overpowered in battle. It seems to me that if we had modern-day prophets, we would have heard the same things about, the Nazi, about Nazi Germany. But who would say that if God was judging the Nazis by prompting the Allied forces to conquer them, that their downfall would be an evil thing that God brought about? Here, McAfee just completely glosses over what a violent and wicked culture the Cushites had. Breaking the Sabbath punishable by death. In this objection, McAfee is pointing out that while the Old Testament law states that the Sabbath, Friday at dusk to Saturday at dusk, is to be kept or the violator could be punished up to death, and that Christians do not celebrate the Sabbath, but rather the Lord's Day, and are thus unwilling to obey the and are thus unwilling to obey the Old Testament law. As we have seen previously, McAfee is wholly unaware of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the various kinds of laws that exist in the Mosaic Law that play a role in the Christian view of the Mosaic Law. Footnote again, see footnote 2 above. In addition to this, many Christians have actually pointed to this very reality as a kind of proof for the resurrection of Jesus. 
they point out that the fiercely monotheistic and legalistic Jews of the first century would never stop observing the Sabbath for anything. The fact that the early church almost suddenly began observing the Lord's Day as a Christian day of rest, the first day of the week rather than the last, must have been precipitated by something quite drastic, something like the resurrection from the dead of the one who claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, who freed them from that very obligation. The Resurrected Armies of Bones I'm actually again at a loss for how to respond to this section as, as well, because I'm not even sure what the objection is. After quoting a lengthy section of scripture where, in a vision, God raised a large desert of bones into a living army, McAfee just states his objection that God raised a large army of bones. It should be noted that this was not even a real event, it was a vision an illustration given to Ezekiel to show that the preaching of God's message to people with absolutely deadened consciences to God would still be powerful and effective and was a strong foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all humanity at the consummation of the world, specifically those raised to newness of life by the saving work of Christ. But McAfee's objection is, quote, this quote from the book of Ezekiel describes a well-known prophecy against the Judeo-Christian religionists in which armies of men are raised from the grave and given life through the power of the Lord. This is considered to be an extremely absurd and radical idea to say the least. End quote. Page 98. From this quote, it is not clear what McAfee's actual point is. Is God not allowed to raise up a Hael? A term that can mean army, but can also mean host, as in the host of heaven, and simply mean a large multitude of people. Not to mention that even if a real army is meant, which it isn't, I'm unclear on what the problem with the verse would be. Is he concerned that the Bible teaches here that we should form a Christian army? Well, let us put it this way. If we are going to be woodenly literal, if God does raise up millions of dry bones into an army from beyond, I think our last concern will be if Christians should form an army of their own, not to mention that this army was formed only by the resurrecting power of God's words and not at the behest of some militant church. The kind of wooden literalism that McAfee seems to employ here is almost militated against by the fact that the concept itself is denied in the following verses where the newly formed people do not chant battle cries but express relief at the fact that they were without hope in the grave but now having been resurrected that they can return and live in peace in their homelands hate thy father and thy mother. McAfee attempts to say that Jesus' comments, quote, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, end quote, found in Luke 14, 26, means that Jesus taught that one must actually hate their own family. 
considering that this passage says to hate our own life and bodies, this kind of wooden literalism yet again seems wholly imprudent. What is clearly being made is a comparison exhorting us to love God as our primary love and to not love others to the exclusion of a total love for God. Does McAfee think that we should actually take the clause about our body to mean that Jesus thought we should hate our body, starve it, beat it, or even kill it? Sadly, he might just. However, this would be totally absurd. We also know that Jesus, one of the greatest moral teachers of all time, who taught to, quote, love your enemy as yourself, end quote, which expressly included the despised Samaritans, surely would have included one's own family, also affirmed word for word the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So to make the objection that McAfee has is just blatantly false. The subservience of women. Due to the highly complex nature of the passage cited, as well as others, I will make only a couple of brief comments here. However, for those interested in more scholarly work on this, I would recommend any critical commentary on the relevant biblical books, as well as the works of, of Wayne Grudem, Andreas Kostenberger, John Piper, Ron Pierce, Rebecca Gruthius, Gordon Fee, and others on biblical manhood and womanhood, their equality, as well as the role of women in the church. The first comment I would like to make is that McAfee states that, quote, Eve was the bearer of original sin, end quote, page 100, which for those Christian denominations that hold to the doctrine, which not all do, is just inaccurate, since the Bible clearly states that we are all guilty in Adam, not in Eve. This kind of oversight has now become commonplace for McAfee, however. So to attempt to pin the problem on Eve, so as to say that the Bible uses that as a basis to oppress women, when in fact the Bible pins the sinful state of humanity on Adam, is a major error. Secondly, there is no reason to think that the curse of pain and childbearing as a result of the fall in Genesis 3 is somehow a contributive factor in some kind of subjugation of women. In fact, all parties involved were given their own curses for their actions at the fall, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. To say that Eve's curse somehow subjugated her just because she received a curse would be thoroughly misleading since Adam also received several curses of his own. Finally, to point out that part of the curse was Eve's quote, desire, Eve's quote, desire would be for her husband, but he will rule over her, end quote, also reveals that McAfee, presumably due to a lack of research, is not only unaware of the complex nature of translating that particular clause, but also of interpreting it. What I have found is that many scholars think that this verse does not command the subjugation of women, but actually reveals a kind of longing in the heart of many women to desire to be the pants, the pants wearers in the family. <clears throat> the curse is that she will constantly be bucking the established created order that man and woman were to be co-laborers together equals and also that not only will she long to rule over her husband, but that her husband will also buck the equality of the created order and become domineering and rule over her. This is not a moral command of God, but is an indicative curse about the dire effects of living in sin in a fallen world. 
God's condemnation of shrimp and shellfish. Since this has to do with the objection to the Sabbath already presented above and the relationship of Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws to the life of the Christian under the New Covenant, I will simply refer to my previous answers on this topic. Footnote. See footnote 2 above for more on this topic. Two other helpful books by O. Palmer Robertson are Christ of the Covenants and the Israel of God. Let your women keep silence. Again, since I gave some thought about this in the objection concerning the subjugation of women, I will simply let the response stand and will hear footnote several sources and only add that McAfee again seems to be blindly unaware of his continual universalizing of commands given to a specific church at a specific time. While there may be applicable use for the passage, many scholars have pointed out the dangers of attempting to universalize or absolutize an imperative that you have read in other people's mail. There is quite a bit of history about why this command was given to the Corinthian church and why we never see it given to any other church. Rather, we see time and time again the Apostle Paul commending the work of women, their ministry, and their teaching, such as Phoebe and Priscilla. Jealous and furious Lord causes natural disasters. While I hate to finish this last section of the chapter of this last chapter of the book with another non-answer, I feel that I must since this is, yet again, just a reformulation of several of the arguments that have been asked and answered previously concerning the relationship of God and suffering. Conclusion Henry David Thoreau famously said, quote, If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. End quote. While he meant it to be an inspirational message to those with high ambitions, it seems entirely relevant to McAfee and his attempt to disprove Christianity. The Christian religion, its orthodoxy and orthopraxy, as well as its heresies and heretics, have for centuries been the subject of inspiration and scholarship nearly unparalleled in its range, complexity, and diversity. It has influenced history, culture, morality, government, economics, philosophy, art, science, business, music, psychology, sociology, and nearly every other aspect of human existence. Believers have ranged from monks, zealots, hypocrites, kings, slaves, businessmen, artisans, scientists, and children, sinners, and saints. Christendom has gone through periods of extreme legalism to unparalleled licentiousness, from acts of unimaginable charity and grace to the utter depths of depravity and inconceivable evil. Belief has ranged from shallow ignorance to cold scholasticism, anti-intellectualism to robust reformation, obfuscation to revelation. Anyone willing to fearlessly march into such a densely populated and heavily footnoted forest is surely one aspiring to build castles in the clouds. The problem for McAfee's book is not his aspiration, but his apathy. While his conclusion finally admits in passing in the closing paragraph of the final chapter that this book is a, quote, pocket guide, end quote, page 111, his conclusion shows a shocking lack of understanding that this section might as well be a description of a 
different book altogether, he quite literally accomplished none of the ends that he says he has accomplished within the conclusion. This final salvo against Christianity is, sadly, more of the same. McAfee states, quote, As illustrated by the previous chapters, it is impossible to argue that the Holy Bible, which is presupposed to be presupposed by the Bible itself and the majority of Christian theologians, including the Roman Catholic papal community, to be infallible, is without faults once you are well informed in regards to its content. End quote. Footnote. To be honest, it's hard to explain why this comment is so strange to people not familiar with the various Christian traditions and ecumenical discussions. I wonder if this kind of inside speak that comes from that comes with spending decades studying a certain topic such that when one hears someone make a superficial comment about it, one can tell that the person is not well versed in the subject, not just by what they say, but even how they phrase it. With such a study of any subject, there comes an understanding and engagement with a kind of shared technical language and manner of discourse particular to experts in that field that McAfee just simply lacks. This is a prime example. To explicitly name the Roman Catholic papal community, a strange term to begin with, as included along with Christian theologians, as if no one would have included them without reference to them, is just bizarre. Why not say including the mainline Protestant evangelical community, or including the Eastern Orthodox Antiochian community, or even charismatic oneness Pentecostal community? Anyone reading this with an academic speciality will surely know what I mean when I say that even the manner that a person addresses an issue is an indication of their depth of understanding and interaction with the experts on that subject. For those who have now waded through the depths of this lengthy review, I am sure we can agree that addressing with a few flippant sentences topics and themes that scholars have seen fit to devote entire books to, or indeed often multi-volume series, is far from illustrating that it is impossible to hold that very conclusion. It is especially peculiar to say that it is impossible once one becomes well-informed after writing a book so lacking in understanding and research as to be catastrophically uninformed. McAfee continues on by saying that through his studies, he has met many Christians who are happy to believe, quote, without extensive self-investigation into the holy texts or even some of the practical beliefs of the tradition in modern context, end quote, page 109. The massage, oh, massage, massive oversight of this comment is that many atheists, as evidenced by this very book, disbelieve without extensive self-investigation into the holy text either. Footnote. For those who are tempted to believe that atheism is some kind of wholly objective, scientific, unemotional, and entirely rational, rationally held lack of belief, I cannot recommend any better book than Alam Shahaz's masterfully written The Young Atheist's Handbook. Here, Shahaz, an ardent and un unabashed atheist 
argues honestly and powerfully against that very conception of atheism. Of course, it is the case that many Christians have not done the legwork to substantiate their beliefs or devotion to God, though if Plantinga is correct in his arguments about properly basic beliefs and justification, they may not need to in order to be within their epistemic rights. But since when does a person's lack of study about a subject make the subject false or more easily disproven? He later claims that it is, quote, ignorance that allows a person to self-identify as a Christian or any other religion without having first researched the Holy Scriptures themselves in order to properly evaluate the religion's veracity or falsity, end quote, page 110 through 111. To this comment, I would simply invert it and say that not only is under, the, uh, not only is it understanding of the Holy Scriptures that has caused billions of people to believe that it is true, but it is also equally true that the lack of research seems to be the driving factor in McAfee's own anti-theistic fundamentalism. Not to mention much of an empiricist, not to be too much of an empiricist, but to bastardize an off-quoted Bertrand Russell statement about what he would say to God if he should meet him, David, sir, why did you not give us better arguments? He then proclaims, quote, even if a believer chooses to discount the Bible as a figurative or imaginative representation of a true God and Jesus Christ, which is of course contrary to the biblical evidence and evangelical Orthodox Christian teachings, the atrocities and absurdities committed or condoned by the Lord chapter of the book demonstrates that the Bible may have been useful as a literary guide to morality at some point, but in the modern society in which rape, slavery, incest, and murder are no longer acceptable, it is an archaic book based on very little historical evidence and teaching irrelevant and archaic principles to its adherents." End quote, page 110. Here there are several problems. Firstly, does McAfee think that the only options available to Christians who hold to the authority of the Bible are a kind of overly wooden literalism or to, quote, discount the Bible as a figurative or imaginative representation of a true God and Jesus Christ, end quote. This starkly obvious false dichotomy is again telling of McAfee's overall lack of engagement with any serious Christian scholarship on the Bible or on Christianity in general. One can even think of N.T. Wright, a top Christian scholar by anyone's standards, who has stated that a wooden literal view of inspiration is that damnable American doctrine. In fact, many Christian theologians have expressly stated that Christianity does not rise or fall with the doctrine of inspiration, such as Daniel Wallace, an expert on the New Testament textual criticism, who quipped that inerrancy is not a person of the Trinity. Others, like William Lane Craig, Michael Lacona, Gary Habermas, and many more, have pointed out that even if the Bible is shown to have errors, that it would not show anything like that God does not exist or that Jesus did not die and then resurrect from the dead. A further problem with this summation is that, as we have seen, that it is not just modern society that condemns rape, slavery, incest, and murder. McAfee would have us believe that they were acceptable to the authors of the Bible and the cultures they inhabited, but that is manifestly not the case. 
to use this false assumption to base the claim that the historical evidence is lacking and its teaching irrelevant is tenuous at best, and even that is possibly being far too charitable. Footnote. Strangely, what is completely lacking from the book where were any evaluations of the historical claims of the Bible. Skeptics have long attempted to show that the Bible is not only theologically problematic in its teaching, but also makes flat-out false historical claims as well. McAfee never adopted this view, and so to say that he has presented a case that the Bible is based on, quote, very little historical evidence, end quote, is thoroughly unsubstantiated. To put it to put the final touch on this on his book, McAfee writes, in order to believe in something, a quote, in order to believe in something, it is my assertion that first one must properly understand it. In the case of Christianity, this consists of strong knowledge of Christian history, modern teaching, and biblical lessons in context. Page 111. Here, for once, we almost agree. McAfee is right. Besides possible justification of properly, properly basic beliefs, in order to believe in something, we must properly understand it, and in the case of Christianity, we really should seek a strong understanding of Christian history and the doctrines of the faith and the biblical text. Footnote. However, as I stated before, I'm not sure why we must be fixated on modern church teachings. In fact, one of the things that many Christians object to is precisely the kind of modernization of Western, specifically American, consumeristic trends in Christendom. Surely Christianity is true or false based on the existence of God, the resurrection of Jesus, or even the core historic Orthodox doctrines, and not some alteration or localized expression of it 2,000 years later. The major predicament facing McAfee is that nearly all all of his objections to the Bible, Christianity as a theological system, and Christendom originate from a remarkably one-dimensional and shallow, improper understanding of the issues involved. If only McAfee had taken his own advice before subjecting us all to this extremely problematic book. I was going to make a whole separate episode for the part two of this book, the other secular writings, but I decided because it would have been so brief, I'm just going to tack it on to this last episode, even though it'll make it over an hour long. Um, so here goes part two, other secular essays. There are no sacrifices for the omnipotent, the Jesus contradiction. This new section that was added for the second edition is not so much a collection of essays as it is a series of exceptionally brief reflections which, upon, which often barely span one or two abrupt pages. In this first reflection, McAfee attempts to drive a wedge between the doctrine of the substitutionary and atoning death of Jesus and the doctrine of God's, and indeed Jesus's, omnipotence, omniscience, and omnibenevolence. He briefly states his objection as follows, quote, If we presuppose that Jesus and God are one, as many, but not all, Christians do, then we can also infer that Jesus Christ was omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, and it is with this that the idea of sacrifice is lost. The martyrdom was premeditated on the part of the Creator, and Jesus was resurrected afterwards, showing that the act of death 
was not an inconvenience for the immortal man who was said to have known the wor that he would be resurrected. End quote, page 115 through 16. Footnote. Here he says that not all Christians identify Jesus as God. This again just shows a lack of study on his part. While it might be the case that some people who deny that Jesus is God incarnate want to call themselves Christians, it is precisely the deity of Jesus that is, and always has been, one of the core distinguishing factors in what a Christian is. It would be as if a theist started calling themselves atheists and, pr and protested when atheists protested that that is not what atheism means, or someone saying that they are a fiscal liberal while arguing passionately for the return of Reaganomics and the extension of the Bush tax cuts. Indian, anyone familiar with Christian theology will immediately see the problem inherent in a comment such as this one. Firstly, there is no logical contradiction be between God being omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnibenevolent, all-good, and Jesus knowing that he was both going to die and resurrect. How does this show that God or Jesus cannot be omnipotent, omniscient, or omnibenevolent? There is nothing about Jesus' death or resurrection that shows that to be the case. While McAfee does not develop his own argument, let me attempt to be charitable and fill out what he is most likely driving at. It seems that the incongruity that McAfee thinks is present is that the sacrifice is not meaningful. That it would be like me trying to say that you owe me money, but that I would pay myself back, and then expecting you to marvel at my generosity to you by paying myself off even though I knew I was going to get my money back anyway when I first lent it to you. There are, per usual, several systematic problems with this kind of objection. The first, as alluded to above, is that it literally has nothing to do with God's omnipotence and omnibenevolence, and the only reason omniscience might play a part is only because it would mean Jesus knew in advance that he would not stay dead, but would resurrect three days later. That, however, is not a problem for omniscience as an attribute of God or Jesus, but only possibly for the meaningfulness of the atonement. The second and even more severe problem is that it is so fundamentally misunderstands why Jesus died. According to the Bible, there is a gulf between humanity and God that humanity has no hope of crossing. It is not a matter of degrees that one sin is more or less problematic for our relationship to God. It is that any sin necessarily changes the actual essence of our relationship with God. It does not mean that some sins are not worse than others, for surely murdering one person is less wicked than genocide. Stealing $1,000 from a millionaire is less wicked than stealing $1,000 from a single mother struggling to pay rent and feed her children. Footnote. I disagree with those who unequivocally say that no sin is worse than another. They may mean that no sin makes a person more of a sinner than any other, but the ambiguity of this kind of statement is often more harmful than helpful. The problem is that in both cases the person is still a murderer, still a thief. In both cases, the person is sinful, and since God, a perfectly just and holy being, cannot allow evil, any evil, to stand unpunished, then regardless of the relative severity of my sin to anyone else, we all stand under the rightful justice of a holy judge. 
as light dispels darkness, simply being in the presence of God would dispel us from existence if we remained in our sins. To make matters worse, because we are sinners, the offenders, we cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot just saunter nonchalantly from the gallows to the judge's bench to hammer down the gavel and declare our own innocence. Our sins cannot go unpunished, or God would not be just, but God cannot execute justice on sin without all humanity perishing, because all of humanity is sinful. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. We are between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Either God is not just, and thus not God, or we cannot be redeemed. This is, however, where the Reformed Christian tradition, to which I belong, differs from late modern American evangelicalism. We do not need a personal relationship with God to solve the problem. In fact, our relationship with God is the problem. We all already have a relationship with God. The question is whether the God who is near is near in wrath or in grace. Is God near in judgment of our sins or near in grace because Christ became sin on our behalf so that we would not have to take the punishment we deserve? Yes, deserve. We must therefore have an intercessor, a mediator, a redeemer, someone to stand in the gap on our behalf. The only way for God to be just and for us to be reconciled to God is if God himself pays the price. This principle is actually one that we are very aware of in our daily lives. If someone steals and totals my car, I have two options. First, I could bring them to justice and then adequate penalties could be paid. This is the straightforward execution of justice. Or I could forgive them and refuse to press charges. We may believe that this is ostensibly what God should do for us, just forgive us. However, this position is not without its difficulties. To begin with, would we want God to always do this? Should God just forgive Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, Pol Pot, and all kinds of brutal sociopaths, tyrannical dictators, and rapists? What about those who have done us wrong? the ones who have swindled our loved ones out of life savings? What about those bosses who may have campaigned to get you fired because of a personal grudge leaving you in debt? We may want a kind of redemption universalism in the abstract, but when we start thinking about our own lives and the real world, we inherently understand that some sins should not be given a golden ticket. But surely, we are good enough. Clearly, we aren't like those people, are we? What self-righteous legalists we are. Here, I think Anselm of Canterbury's quote is fitting. You have not yet considered how great your sin is. Is not the very attitude that God should forgive us itself a kind of dishonest, judgmental, and obviously self-serving attitude? What makes this problem even deeper is that even if we forgive the car thief, we still pay the penalty ourselves. We are still out the cost to repair or replace the car, the insurance premiums, maybe the salary lost from missing work to settle the issue. 
Even if I know in advance that I can afford the price of the repairs or to replace the car, I still pay the price and the thief, if they were even remotely morally self-aware, would recognize the magnitude of the situation that they were facing jail time, but was found not only innocent by the eyes of the state, but were but was also wholly forgiven by the person they sinned against. Even if we choose sheer grace, we still pay the price. So it is it is with Jesus. He came to stand in the gap, to both satisfy the demands of justice for every sin we have committed, and to ensure that redemption would be possible for us. The fact that he knew he would be resurrected in the end does nothing to decrease the significance of the crucifixion or resurrection, let alone show any contradiction between the essential attributes of God's omnipotence, omniscience, or omnibenevolence. A Glitch in God's System the paradox of divine intervention. McAfee begins this section with, a, with such a demonstrably false assertion that it is hard to take any of what follows seriously. He states that, quote, the science and psychology of religion boils down to a few main pillars, faith, uninformed beliefs, and fear of the unknown, end quote, page 117. Not only is there no such discipline of, quote, the science of religion, end quote, but anyone even remotely aware with the psychology of religious belief and the scholarship on the philosophy of religious worldviews and theistic belief will know instantly to, that to say that religious belief boils down to mere faith, uninformed beliefs, and fear of the unknown is such propagandistic rhetoric that it would be surprising if even McAfee believed it, though at this point I would not put it past him. One must only think of the countless number of Christian scholars who have shaped nearly every academic discipline ranging from theology to cosmology, sociology to, yes, psychology. Nearly every Ivy League school was formed as an explicitly Christian institution, the system of public health care and hospitals began as a missionary effort, and the advent of even science itself dawned in the context of Christendom and its belief that the universe was intelligible, ordered, and governed such that it could be systematically studied was precisely because it was de designed and ordered by a rational creator. Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, Kepler, Bacon, and nearly every one of the early scientists, almost down to the man, were Christians and unequivocally attributed their science to their belief in God. The Big Bang was first proposed scientifically by a Belgian priest named George Lemaitre, and the human genome was decoded by outspoken Christian Francis Collins. To try to say that religion boils down to faith uninformed beliefs and fear of the unknown is so manifestly absurd that it is nearly condemnable. Yet, as for the actual paradox that McAfee attempts to force into existence, per usual his terms are entirely imprecise and it is not really a paradox that he tries to present at all. The problem that he seeks to address in the response to a bitter comment he received from a theist who was angry about McAfee's writing, he looks around his life and does not see the, quote, this life kind of consequences for his sins 
that his correspondent says that he would suffer. It is on this point that I would point him back to the conclusion of the first part of his book, where he said that in order to understand it, we must have a proper understanding of Christianity and biblical teaching. Here, even a dash of either one of those would clear up the issue and bring into focus that his conflict is with that specific objector and nothing inherent in Christianity or the Bible. While in one sense the Bible says that we all suffer the consequences of sin in this life, sickness, pain, suffering, loss of love, toil, and ultimately death, we showed previously that the Bible also shows that there is not usually a straight line between personal sin and the consequences that it brings about. In Psalm 73, 1-14, written by Asaph, we find the following. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain they have, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Where in this passage does it say that our sins will be directly punished in this life? What Asaph actually notices is the opposite. Often it is the people who try to be pure and who keep their hearts clean that suffer. How often have we seen people who are taken advantage of for their honesty, their generosity, or their willing willingness to forgive over and over? In fact, to go even further, Asaph continues by saying the following in verse 16 through 17 and verse 26 through 27. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then discerned their end, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Asaph moves from a psalm of lament over the seemingly futility of piety to the observation that piety is not futile after all. What happens in the sanctuary of God, that is, the temple that is the turning point in this psalm? It was where the sacrifices the atonements for sin took place. What Asaph saw was the final outcome of sin, that even if the wicked seemed to prosper and live at ease in this life, it would not last. Unless their sins were atoned for, see the comments above concerning the atonement of Jesus, they would suffer the same fate as the lambs, 
it is either us or the lamb in the end. In fact, there is a passage in Luke that I have found most anti-theists are entirely unaware of. Luke 13, 1-5 reads, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why is this passage relevant? Well, we notice several interesting things in Jesus' response to the, this natural disaster. Firstly, is that Jesus is not concerned with salvation prospecting, that is, with trying to figure out who is in and who is out. He asks his disciples, who were mostly Galileans, if they think that just because they died during the, their religious ceremony at the hands of Pilate, a moral evil, or that those who died when the Tower of Siloam collapsed on them, a natural evil, were somehow worse than sinners that, than others who did not die. His answer was that they were not worse sinners and that the disciples should be ensuring that they were right with God and stop worrying so much about if others are worse than they are. But secondly, and more to the point here, is that Jesus expressly denies that there is a one-to-one -one correlation between personal sin and overt condemnations in this life. Again, while it may be the case that due to the corrosive nature of sin, we all suffer, suffer general ills or even suffer direct consequences of certain sins, excessive drinking than driving might lead naturally to the consequences of accidental manslaughter, it is simply not the case that we can say an unbeliever will live a life of obvious condemnation. That McAfee can reflect on his life and have, complete, have a completely, quote, happy, healthy, loving family, and he can do what he loves, end quote, page 118, should not be surprising to any Christian. We even see Jesus expressly teaching that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, end quote, Matthew 5:45. McAfee ends this section with a kind of Magna Carta of atheistic autonomy. He triumphantly proclaims, quote, I can live my life by my own instinctual human morals and not worry about what a god might think and what type of punishment that I may or may not receive, end quote, page 119. The question is, however, if he should live in such a way and if his view is true, I could live in such a way as to not worry about how the American government might punish me for certain things, or without regard to what my wife or family would think. I could do my job without caring about what my boss thinks of my performance. The problem is that just because I could live a life of such reckless abandon and disregard, I shouldn't. The government could imprison me, whether I accepted their authority or not. My gospel boss could fire me even if I did not care to consider them worthy of my respect. Besides the problems we discussed earlier of McAfee's inconsistently regarding human morals, what that would even mean, 
We simply, he simply asserts that he can live without considering himself obligated to seek the will of God. The last I checked, however, bald assertion and reasonable cogent argumentation were two different things. A letter to Christian hypocrites. This epistle of indignation is principally just a rehashing of what McAfee has already argued elsewhere in the book. In addition to again being oblivious to the inconsistency of his naturalistic worldview to his moral indignation that palpably oozes from the pages, he also charges Christians with not following the dietary laws of the Old Testament, lacking understanding of the threefold law, that they have amassed wealth, assuming that the Bible equivocally, unequivocally condemns the wealthy, that all people who are Christian will not go to hell, including those who have never heard, missing the clear teaching of Romans 2 that this is not necessarily the case, that many Christians do not agree with these problems and only call themselves Christians for cultural reasons, which misses that there are other reasons for dismissing his summations of biblical teaching and that cultural Christianity is utterly distinct from Christianity as a religion, and that research will lead to a disavowing of their faith missing that many believe because of research and that his book is so poorly researched and assertions so poorly argued that he is not one to talk. All in all, it is just an even more assumptive and assuming section than when these objections were previously declared. Why Atheists Should Understand the Bible This section, like the one above, is primarily just a mulligan of the previous chapter of his book entitled Cultural Christianity which discussed inherited belief, and the means by which many Christians gain their faith by their parents' bedside. What is new is his quite admirable claim that atheists should come to understand the Bible. It is not, however, for the love of learning. What makes this passage so ironic is that he condemns the proselytization by Christians, but, where, but here is basically writing a charter for evangelical atheism. He is just one small hop, skip, and a jump away from writing atheist tracts and going door-to-door to share the good news of disbelief. Behold, the kingdom of naturalism is at hand. Repent of your faith and disbelieve. He says that atheists should understand the Bible so that science, society, and government are no longer impacted and restrained by the archaic pillars upon which supernatural religions, cults, and theism in general are built. End quote, page 128 all the while ignoring that he simply begs two questions. First, that science, society, and government are restrained by religion, and second, that he has proven that it is false and archaic. Both points he has failed miserably to demonstrate. Religion and War, the Chicken and the Egg Here I am thankful to see that McAfee is willing to admit that religion is not the cause of all wars, or even that all religious people are warmongers. The problem, or so he says, is that religion is often used to justify actions that we would otherwise recognize as wrong. You may be surprised to know that I actually agree. Religion has been used to justify all kinds of horrible actions. And while McAfee admits that other institutions have as well, such as nationalism, he does not seem to go far enough. In fact, any ideology could be used as a tool to justify whatever someone wants to. Atheism was used in Stalin's Russia, Mao's China, Hoxha's Albania, Castro's Cuba, and dozens of other tyrannical communist states. Evolution was used in German and American eugenics programs, 
footnote. For more on this, I recommend the Oxford Handbook of the History of Eugenics, edited by Brashford and Levine. Democracy was used to stir up anti-Chinese sentiment during the days of McCarthyism and freedom of patri patriotism to instigate anti-Iraqi sentiment leading up to the Iraq War. Nearly every ideology has been used at some point by someone or some group to justify some horrible atrocity. Not only does McAfee miss that point, but he also seems to think that this is a problem of religion, that somehow it is inherent in religion that it condones its use as a justifying force. While I would not argue with this for some religions, such as militant Islam, the fact that Jesus explicitly commanded an ethic of forgiveness, love, mercy, turning the other cheek, doing no harm to others, and that those who live by the sword will die by the sword, the fact that some people try to use Christianity to justify war shows that they are being extremely unchristian. They are acting in direct contradiction to Christianity itself. So the only way a person could use Christianity to justify some unjust war is to fundamentally alter or flat-out ignore the very ethic that makes Christianity Christian. Footnote. For can we really say that all wars are bad? I am by mo no means an advocate of force, but I am not a pacifist either. I think America was just in invading Germany to stop its European domination and the Holocaust. Even though to stop Germany, it sadly allied itself with another brutal dictator in Stalin, but unjust in installing a Chilean dictator. Surely the Christian ethic of protecting the poor and the oppressed demands that we stand up to dictators like Hitler, Pol Pot, and Jong-il. Two Nations Under God The Canadian Charter from an American Perspective I will only note the irony of McAfee calling himself a, quote, American scholar of religious studies, end quote, who is accustomed to studying religion's impact on society from a, quote, objective point of view, end quote, page 135, after spending an entire book showing how unscholarly, under-researched, and overly and zealously biased he has been in his entire treatment of God, Jesus, theism in general, and Christianity in Pacific, the Bible, and Western Christendom. In, his final round, in this final round of objections to any and all things religious, McAfee makes a somewhat patchy critique of the Canadian Charter, the Canadian equivalent of the U.S. Bill of Rights. His main complaint, from what I gather, is that while America is more, quote, Christian, with only 11 to 14 percent of its Christians claiming no religion, than Canada, with about 14 percent of its Christians claiming no religion, the preamble to Canada's charter expressly states, quote, Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, end quote. Footnote. These kinds of surveys are frequently touted by skeptics about the rise of secularism or atheism or unbelief in some particular country. What is often so frequently missed is that no religion includes theists, deists, pantheists, panentheists, polytheists, henotheists, and universalists and Unitarians who simply do not ascribe to any organized or centralized religious institution or denomination. In fact, there was quite a while in my life where I was a devout believer in God and Jesus, but would have marked not religious because I did not attend church but had a solely personal belief. 
A good example of this is Sweden. For years, atheists have pointed to Sweden as one of the most successfully atheistic nations in the world, as well as being one of the most progressive. They point to monthly church attendance being below 10% as a marker of that. The problem is that church attendance is not the only statistic we should look at. How secular should we consider Sweden when importance of um, sorry how secular should we consider Sweden when it has a state church something even the U.S. doesn't have with nearly 70 percent of its population carrying a membership in 2011. While they may have low polls on the importance of religion or trust in the church, about 50% of weddings occur in the church, and over 90% of Swedes have expressly Christian burials. For more, see the wiki summation of the various polls of religion in Sweden. For some reason, McAfee thinks that this means that, quote, because of this charter provision, Canada is not necessarily guaranteed any secular liberties, end quote, page 138. A very strange position indeed, considering that immediately following the preamble is a guarantee of secular liberties. In fact, the guarantee of those liberties is the sole purpose of the charter, not to mention that what McAfee seems to miss is that while the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights do not expressly state allegiance to God, it is hard to understand what they mean considering that many of the drafters of the, those documents were also signatories on the Declaration of Independence. The reason that this is important is that when we consider what they consider the basis for laws and human and civil secular rights, they quite clearly tell us, quote, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the law of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinion of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." End quote. I am actually a secularist. When it comes to government, I appreciate the separation of church and state. It allows for the free exercise of religion or lack of religion, and it keeps the affairs of the church out of the state and the affairs of the state out of the church. Footnote. If atheists really wanted to drive religion out of America, they would demand that religion take over. The history of theocracy has always resulted in the near death of the church for a time. It is no surprise that religion has flourished in the U.S. where religion was never allowed to be governmentally institutionalized. The point is, however, that just because Canada expressly states that God is the basis for their legal system, it does not follow that Canada does not at the same time guarantee secular rights. In fact, the great irony of this is that it seems Canada is more likely to guarantee them. If Canada, like the American Declaration of Independence, sees that these rights are inalienable and endowed by their creator, 
then I see no reason to think that they will not see them as entirely immutable, that the state has absolutely no right or authority to override the rule and will of God in making these freedoms inalienable rights. On the other hand, a government that expressly and intentionally denies that there are any inalienable rights or that the government has a duty to uphold the freedom of its citizens, but rather that rights are only and ever whatever is granted by the state, what is it besides the sheer will of the people that holds them back from running roughshod all over them? A parent can tell their child that they can watch TV until 9 p.m., but then change their mind and only allow them to watch TV till 8 p.m. My house, my rules. If we are citizens of the government's house in which, in which our freedoms are just what the government allows us to have, why ought they not revoke or limit those freedoms we have come to enjoy? It is only when the government sees itself as a steward of another's house that they are not free to do as they please. Now, as I have stated, I am a secularist. That is, I believe in the separation of church affairs from governmental affairs. This does not mean that I do not think that a theistic basis is better assurance of our fundamental freedoms than a purely reductionistic, naturalistic one, or that Christians as citizens of the state should not be active Christian citizens or Christian politicians who vote according to what they believe is right. It only means that I believe that the church as an institution should not control governmental action and that the state should not meddle in church affairs. The First Amendment guarantees separation of church and state, not separation from church. It states that government shall make no law establishing a specific religion and it shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. It says nothing about the metaphysical ground for the very rights for which it is arguing. For that, we have the Declaration of Independence and, indeed, the Bible. Well, that just about does it today for the Freed Thinker podcast. Thank you for joining us. Join me again next time as we continue our presentation of my book review of David McAfee's book. As always, if you have any questions, you can comment on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com don't forget the hyphen www.logical-theism.blogspot.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash group slash the freed thinker podcast until next time have a great day everybody